0: This past week, I got an email from a friend of mine who I haven't talked to in about a year. He's been going through some difficulties, and we just haven't been able to keep in contact with each other. But he emailed me to let me know what he was going through, and he knows my heart. He knows my concern for him, and he asked me to pray for him. And and so I've I've been praying for my friend who, who emailed me. This past week, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. He knew that we were having a pretty rough week and he wanted to check in on me and make sure I was doing okay. He expressed his concern because he knows my heart and we talked for a while and, and he said he'd be praying for me, be praying for all of us. This past week, I got together with one of my dearest friends and, and we had breakfast together on, on Friday and we both shared our frustrations and our concerns. We shared some joys. We laughed and we, uh, we talked for a while and we, and we prayed. Three different friends, three different modes of communication, email, phone call, and and talking face to face, three different settings, and yet one consistency. That consistency is that friends talk, friends communicate, and friends often pray together. And so when we consider God friended me, when we consider what it means that God has has friended us, do we realize that friendship must contain communication. Friends talk to one another, they, they share together, they, they know each other. And that must be true of our friendship with God. In fact, the Bible emphasizes that over and over again. Way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, it says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. I know them and they follow me. Jesus expects us to communicate with him. He expects us to communicate friend to friend. We're going to look at a, at a prayer today. It's in your Old Testament. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now don't make the mistake that I did on my very first time that I came to church. My very first time I came to church... The preacher announced that we would be in 2 Chronicles and I popped my Bible open and I went to 2 Corinthians and I was lost for that, like half of that sermon because I didn't realize there was Chronicles in the Old Testament and Corinthians in the New Testament. This is way back in your Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verses 1 through 12. If you use one of those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 372. Uh, if you've got your Bible app, the UVersion Bible app, all of my notes are available there and you can follow along through that. We're not used to this section of the Bible, it's a little confusing, and so maybe we need a little background, we need a little refresher on what's going on. This was a very difficult time in Israel's history. In fact, Israel is split into two kingdoms you have Judah. To the south, you have Israel or Ephraim as the kingdom to the north. Now, the king of Judah in the south is a man named Jehoshaphat. Isn't that a great name? Jehoshaphat. Jumping Jehoshaphat. I don't know how many times I heard that watching cartoons when I was a kid, but Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And he is going through a very difficult time. It's a time of war. Things are not looking good. If you look at those first three verses it kind of sets the stage for us it says after this the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Mayanites came against Jehoshaphat for battle some men came and told Jehoshaphat a great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea and behold they are in Hazazon Tamar that Engedi, En-Gedi and Jehoshaphat was afraid he was afraid. Three armies, two, two and a half armies are coming against the nation. We're even told what route they're taking. They're coming by the En-Gedi. That's a That's a creek. That's a, a kind of a secret way in. But there's a great multitude coming in, walking through this creek, coming against the nation. We're, we're, we're told there's a lot of them. It's a great multitude. And you cannot miss that Jehoshaphat is afraid. And so what does he do? Well, the rest of the passage is Jehoshaphat's prayer. Again, there in verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now before we dive into the prayer, I want you to notice a verse that's kind of at the heart. I think it's at the very center of what Jehoshaphat is praying. If you notice in verse 7, Jehoshaphat prays to God and he says, did you not, did you not, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, Abraham, your friend. Suddenly, this prayer isn't about Jehoshaphat. Suddenly, it's not about his fear." It's not about the the enemies that are coming against him, the problem that he has. It's not about the invasion. It's about who God has proven himself to be and who God has promised himself to be through his friendship with Abraham. I know you've got fears of your own. I know you've got anxieties of your own. You, you, You have struggles of your own and some of them are, are constantly in front of you, constantly on your mind, I want you to look at what Jehoshaphat did. In verse 3, he set his face to seek the Lord. When you do that, when you set your face to seek the Lord, rather than focus on your fear, you will find that prayer unites that need within you. Prayer unites the need of your heart with the heart of God. And so what I want to do today is It's kind of just walk through this prayer, kind of just make our way through this prayer of Jehoshaphat. And as he begins to voice his prayer, again, we don't find his fear. We don't find his need. We find something that we ought to focus on when we pray, something that ought to be at the beginning of our prayers. We find a declaration here, a declaration of who God is. As I said, this prayer is motivated by fear. People are coming against the nation. They're, they're coming to attack. This, this prayer begins because of fear. I've said this enough. You ought to be able to remember it. You ought to be able to tell me right back. What is the number one command in the Bible more than any other command? Fear not. I heard somebody mumble it. And that's exactly how you ought to say it when you, when you pray. Fear not. You know, fear not. No. You know, fear not. Be not afraid. Over a hundred times in the Bible we hear those words. Be not afraid. Fear not. And Jehoshaphat meets his fear with prayer. I want you to notice where he goes first. He doesn't begin with, oh God, this is huge. This army is incredible. They are going to smear us, Lord. His first words as he speaks his prayer are a declaration of who God is. It says in verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord, so he's in the temple, before the new court, And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. It seems a little strange, but Jehoshaphat begins his prayer by reminding God of who he is. He reminds God of who he is. He says, are you not God in heaven? Now, when when you and I hear the word heaven, I know what you're thinking. When you hear heaven, you're thinking uh, big pink puffy clouds, and you're thinking angels flying around, and you're thinking people sitting on clouds playing harps, because that's the image that we have of what heaven is like. You realize not a single one of those images are what the Bible says heaven is like, right? That nothing in that image that we have in our mind is anything at all like what the Bible says heaven is like. Maybe we ought to talk about that sometime. But I want you to consider this. Jehoshaphat's got people sneaking in, right? They're coming in through the the creek. There's a huge army of them coming in. And he prays, oh God, are you not God in heaven? Are you not God above? Heaven's not just God's home. Heaven is a tactical position. You understand? It is a position where God, the one who is most high, can see the entire problem. Where God has the vantage point where he can see exactly what is happening to his servant Jehoshaphat exactly what he's afraid of he knows what the enemy is doing God is in a tactical advantage he is in a point where he can see everything and so he prays God in heaven there is no better place for God to be he rules over all the kingdoms over all the nations and it's not just about recognizing who God is or where God is it's his ability also he says in verse six, "In your hand are power and might. power is another word for strength. We get that might is the perfect companion for power. Might means bravery. in your hand is strength and bravery. So his prayer begins by declaring who God is and what God is capable of doing and that and that because of his might, God has an, a heart to act on." Jehoshaphat's behalf, a heart to meet his need. And then verse six ends with those words. None is with able, excuse me, none is able to withstand you. None is able to withstand you. That's a statement of God's ultimate power. It's a statement of his greatness. It's also a statement of his love for us. None are able to withstand you. The problem is it's also a statement that comes from our faith. It's a a statement of faith. And there's times when we don't believe that. We don't believe that none are able to withstand God. None is able to withstand you. And yet you and I continue to let our fears rule over us. We continue to let our fears have the final word about how we feel. We continue to let our our anxieties rule rule over us we continue to allow depression and, and despondency to to rule over us our wants continue to drive us instead of trusting that God is going to supply every need that we have and every now and then every now and then you just need to remind yourself of who's in charge you need to remind your heart of who's in charge who is God in heaven who is God over all who's really in charge and and you need to remind yourself that the one who's in charge, He's also your friend. And in those times when the struggle seems so huge, when you remember who God is, as Jehoshaphat's prayer moves on though, it's not just about who God is. It's a reminder of what God has done. This is something I love about so many of the prayers in the Bible, especially prayers in the Old Testament. and This one has a huge reminder of what God has done. Every now and then when someone prays in the Old Testament, they'll do this. They'll say, Lord, you're the one that parted the Red Sea and your people came through. If you could part the Red Sea back then, you, you can still do that now. Lord, you're the one who delivered your people, Israel, out of the hands of, uh, of slavery and, and, and out of Egypt. If you delivered them, you can deliver us now. I love the way that they remind God of of what He has done. They they remember those stories, that stories of God's power, stories of God's presence. Those were such an important part of who those people were. Verse 7, he says, Did you not... Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and built you a sanctuary for your name, saying, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and you will save. You hear his prayer? God, did you not? Let me ask you, do you think God really needed reminding? Do you think God's in heaven saying, oh yeah, I did do that. Yeah, I remember that. I'd forgotten that I was able to do that. No. Of course, not. God doesn't need reminding. But Jehoshaphat needed reminding. He needed to remember that God was still God. The people needed reminding. They needed to be reminded that they were, they were the children of Abraham, God's friend. They needed to remember the stories of what God had led them through. Those kind of stories fuel our faith. Those kind of stories remind us of what God is capable of doing now. They needed those kind of stories. We need those kind of stories in our churches, in our families, in our community. We need to tell each other those kind of stories. A few weeks ago, I I got together with some friends Every few months we get together and we have a, a wonderful time. We, we get together and we kind of blow off a lot of steam together and just, just have a great time. And we ended up sitting up talking way late into the night. A couple of the guys I, I run around with, a couple of them are, are preachers. One of them is a, a Bible college professor. And, and uh, so we, we have a, just have a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And we started telling stories. One of my friends told the story about the day that he was born. The day that he was born, his father was out in the waiting room, as they used to do, out in the waiting room. And the doctor came out, and he said, things are not going well, and you have a decision to make. I can either save your wife or I can save your child, but I can't save both. Tell me what to do. And his father made what he said was the right decision. His father said, save my wife. And the doctor went back in to go to work, and his father got down on his knees in the waiting room and said, Lord, if you will give me my child too, that child belongs to you. I will dedicate that child to you and to serving you. He lived. He's a preacher today. Another friend of mine said when he was very young, when he was just a little baby, he got sick. He got really, really sick. And the doctors told his family, I don't, we don't know what this is. We don't know what's happening. We don't know how to fix it. And his dad got down on his knees and said, God, if you'll save my son, I'll give him to you. He'll, he'll be a preacher. He's a preacher today. By the way, both those men have preached here. Both those men have been here and, and shared a message with you. I told the story about my sister before I was born. I was just a, a gleam in mom and dad's eye. And my sister, 15 15 years old. Don't ever discount the prayers of a 15-year-old. They're powerful. 15 years old, praying, God, make my little brother a preacher. Amazing prayer. We shared those stories with each other. And those stories strengthened our faith. I have to believe you've got stories like that. I know you've got stories like that in your family. times when God delivered you and God saved you. Maybe you've got stories of grandparents who... Who prayed and prayed, and grandparents who served, make sure you pass those stories on to your kids. Make sure you pass those stories on to your grandkids. How many times, how many times do we sit and we look at the news and we look at what the world's going through and we sit and we say, I don't know what the kids of today are going to do? We're not leaving a very good world for them. Look at all the challenges that the kids are going to have to face and our grandkids are going to have to face. What if they face those challenges with your stories? What if they faced those challenges with stories of faith about how God stepped in and saved you and changed you and did amazing things in the life of your family? What if they faced those challenges with those stories of God's faithfulness? And what if as a church, as a church in a county, where I'll remind you again, 57% of the people in our county have no faith at all, What if we helped people who had no faith have stories of faith? What if through our love, what if through our generosity, what if through our giving, we created stories of amazing grace for people that have no stories? What if through the generous buckets and through giving to people who who have needs in our community, we were able to to help them create stories of a church that helped them when, when they had nothing? What if through our benevolent ministries that where we take care of bills that people can't pay. So often we pay, pe- we pay people's expenses for medicine and for trips to the, to the hospital, trips to the doctor. What if they develop stories of grace? What if through the way we take care of high school kids once a week, providing a meal and a place for them to pray, what if they develop stories of faith and stories of, of an amazing God and amazing people that cared for them? We can help create stories of faith for people around us who will face challenges that we can't even begin to imagine. See, it was those kind of stories that fueled Jehoshaphat's prayer. It fueled his prayer and it fueled his faith. And he begins with that declaration of who God is and then a reminder of how God has proven his faithfulness. And then he concludes his prayer. And as he concludes his prayer, it's a commitment from him and a commitment from his people. And I think we need to make the same commitment. I know we need to make the same commitment today. It's a commitment to place our trust in God. Remember, he identifies God as the friend of Abraham. That is key to the force of his prayer. When it comes to friendship, trust is very important, isn't it? You have to trust your friends. You trust your friends are going to be there. You trust your friends are going to keep their mouths shut about some of the things that you do with your friends, right? You trust that your friends keep your secrets. You trust that your friends are going to be there for you. But but it's more than that. More important than that, you you trust that your friend's going to be your friend. You trust the consistency in your friend, that that your friend is always going to be your friend, that they're not going to stab you in the back, that they're not going to turn their back on you, or or at some point when you go to them, they're not going to fly off the handle and be someone completely different. You trust consistency in your friend. God called Abraham his friend. Abraham was God's friend. God was Abraham's friend. And as Jehoshaphat wraps up his prayer, he he lays out his need. He lays out what he's afraid of. And in verse 10, he says, and now behold, three times in this prayer he says behold, and now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you wouldn't let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and behold, they avowed and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Now, I want you to notice something. Those two verses are a dig at God. He's digging at God a little bit. He's he's kind of goading God a little bit because he's going back in history and he's reminding God that when Israel first came into the Promised Land, when we first left Egypt, you told us to wipe everybody out except you told us to leave the Moabites alone and you told us to leave the Ammonites alone. And now they are thanking us for that by attacking us and they're going to come and take everything that you have given us. And so it's Jehoshaphat's way of kind of reminding God, you know... This is really your fault. (laughs) This is really your fault, God, because if you had let Joshua take care of this all those years ago, this wouldn't be happening now. I want you to keep that in your mind, okay? Because we're going to come back to that in about two minutes, okay? So stay with me for just a couple minutes. We're going to come back to that little jab that Jehoshaphat, jabbing Jehoshaphat, gives to, uh, to God right there. Verse 12. We read this. This is the conclusion of his prayer. Oh, oh our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I want you to think, at the end of this prayer, what's really changed? What's changed by the end of this prayer? There's only one thing that's changed. You see, the enemy is still coming. God's people are still in danger. The, the, everything that they have built, that they have been given, is, is still in danger of being taken from them. But there is one thing that has changed. Jehoshaphat ends that prayer by saying, but our eyes are on You. His eyes aren't on His fear. His eyes aren't on the threats. His eyes aren't on himself and what he has not done. Maybe how he has messed up. They're not on his weakness. His eyes are on God. If your prayers do nothing else, if your prayers do nothing else, they should at least put your eyes on someone greater than you. If nothing else, your prayers should put your eyes on the one who is greater than you. We always end our prayers with the word "Amen." That's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible on every prayer. I think the reason we end our prayers with "Amen" is because we teach people to bow their eyes and, and bow their eyes, bow their heads, and, and close their eyes. And when you hear "Amen," you know it's time to eat, right? Because you can't see what's going on, and you know you, you know you're allowed to eat. I think that's why we close with "Amen." I always close my prayers. I, I can't stop it. I always close my prayers with the words, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because the Bible says, if you ask in Jesus' name, and somehow I was taught years ago, always say in Jesus' name, because that way you know it's really going to get answered. That's not what that means, but it's a habit. And and honestly, I don't mind saying the name of Jesus. I kind of like saying the name of Jesus. So I end my prayers with in Jesus' name. But I wonder what would happen if we just made a commitment to ending our prayers with the words... But our eyes are on You. But our eyes are on You. Father, cancer is horrible. And it has stolen so many wonderful people. Cancer is, is horrible. And, and we are grieving. And, and, and we are in pain. And a family, is, a family is grieving as they've never grieved before. But our eyes are on You. Father, divorce hurts and and it tears us apart, and, and we end up feeling so betrayed. But our eyes are on You. Father, there's times when I don't understand these feelings, and I don't understand this depression and this anxiety that wakes me up in the middle of the night and refuses to let me go back to sleep. But our eyes are on You. Our eyes are not on our weakness. Our eyes are not on our pain. Our eyes are not on our problems. Our eyes are not on the threat that is coming against us. Our eyes are on you. Now, God heard Jehoshaphat's prayer. He heard that prayer and he answered that prayer. And do you remember what I told you a few minutes ago about the little dig that Jehoshaphat got in? Because 600 years earlier, when Joshua was leading the people of Israel into the promised land, 600 years earlier, when they had a real army, when they had amazing men of valor fighting on their behalf, God said, Do not touch the Ammonites, do not touch the Moabites, leave them alone. 600 years earlier, God said, Don't touch them. And now those very same people were coming against them. And Jehoshaphat says, It's kind of on you, God. This is your fault. Well, the the army of, of Judah goes out to meet that threat. The amazing thing is, if you read on, you know later this afternoon, maybe read the rest of the chapter. But but as you read on, they don't just go out with weapons; they go out in prayer, they go out in praise, they go out in worship as they go to meet this threat. And to look on down as the, as you look on down in verses uh, twenty one through twenty three, there in chapter twenty, it says, "And when he had taken counsel with the people, he." Jehoshaphat, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord to praise him in holy attire. They went before the army and they say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. <laughs> and when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. The Lord Himself set an ambush against them. For the men of Ammon and Moab, they rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy each other. (laughs) I love how it puts it. They all helped to destroy each other. 600 years earlier, Israel would have tried to defeat those people by their own power. 600 years earlier, they would have tried to defeat them by their own might. But God waited until a time when He could take care of it Himself. 600 years, God waited until a time when He could take care of it Himself. This is one of those not yet promises. This is one of those things that God promises us, but not yet. There are times... When we have to trust in God. When we have to trust that God will do what God needs to do when God needs to do it. But our eyes are on You. And we have to be okay with that. And we can. We can be okay with that because He's our friend. Because we know who He is. Because we know what He is capable of doing. And because we put our trust in Him. I'm not sure what's coming against you today. I'm not sure what challenges you're facing this week. Uh, I'm not sure what you're up against. I'm not sure what it is that that seems so huge. But I know the prayer you need to pray. The prayer you need to pray is, but our eyes are on you. Uh, Father, we may not have three armies coming against us, but we know the threats of sickness, the threats of grief, broken relationships and broken hearts. We know the threats of dark depression and anxiety. These and so much more have left us focusing on our fear and have kept our eyes from You. And so we ask that You would strengthen us with Your might and Your power. Help us to focus on You and help us to create stories of faith that will not just strengthen us, but strengthen those who will follow. We admit there are so many times when we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.